Welcome to the Feeling Seen podcast. And my name is Dr. Anthony Teasdale. I'm a staff psychologist at CAPS. And welcome. I'm Dr. Erin Scott, also a staff psychologist at UNC CAPS. And we're so delighted to have with us today our esteemed friend and colleague, Dr. Anna Locke. Um, she's also our resident anxiety expert. Um, Dr. Locke comes to us with a long history of training and expertise in anxiety disorders and treatment. And we thought we would have her on today to talk about the big A uh, that lots of students are going to be dealing with or have dealt with, and that is anxiety. Welcome, Dr. Locke. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. So to get us started with this conversation, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I think we use the term anxiety or I'm anxious. I mean, it's probably one of my most text words if I went through my, my history. I think people use that term, you know, kind of colloquially. And I'm wondering if you can tell us the difference between just regular, like run of the mill anxiety and when it becomes problematic. Sure. Um, so I think you're right. I think, I think that it's probably something that we talk about a lot because it happens a lot. It's, uh, a natural sort of biological anxiety or I'm sorry, emotion that we have that we need. So evolutionarily speaking, anxiety is our fight or flight system. It's the part of our, our um, sort of internal system that tells us that something may or may not be wrong. So if a mountain lion walked into the room right now, um, I would get anxious and I would be glad that I was anxious because it would be telling me, okay, something's going on and it would prepare my body for, for running away or defending myself in some way. Um, and anxiety comes up a, a lot of times as ways of sort of like keeping us alert to our surroundings. So if I were to go for a walk in the dark by myself, I might feel a little anxious and that's gonna be protective because then I'm gonna be like up, like kind of alert and looking around and paying attention to what's around me. Now, that that is the way that anxiety kind of comes up naturally for like fight, like for like survival basically. Mm -hmm. But it also comes up for us in other ways too that is probably more sort of what you're talking about. Like if I might tell a friend that I'm feeling anxious about something, um, it's usually something that I'm worried about, like, let's say I have a presentation at work, or um, I had a strange conversation with a friend, and now I'm not really sure if they're mad at me or not. Um, yeah. That kind of anxiety is also still, like, very um, sort of typical, and I think uh, expected in sort of how, how we are in the world, and that is because it is the anticipa anticipation that something, again, may or may not be wrong. So I might have upset my friend. I might not have. I'm not sure. Uh, what I'm, what the anxiety is telling me is like, hey, this might be important, and there, therefore it's worth kind of paying attention to, to check out, to see if whether there's something up or not. Because if there is, then that anxiety is going to motivate me to be like, hey, like I feel like maybe I said the wrong thing. Can we talk about this? Um, so, uh, so anxiety can be motivating in a way that's helpful. Also like with a presentation, like preparation or anxiety about something at work, again, that's a little bit of anxiety is motivating because it says, Hey, this is important. I want this to go well. And so it's going to help me kind of get stuff done. The ways that it kind of becomes problematic is if that anxiety is always based on like the hypothetical or like p possibility of something bad happening because 
unless someone has special powers I'm not aware of, <laughs> we can't predict the future, right? So I might worry like, like not just like, wow, I have this presentation coming, but it's when the worry gets to, I'm going to ruin the presentation. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to make a fool out of myself. And that really feels true to me internally. That's where it starts becoming problematic. It's when I take that worry and I turn it into a fact versus a possibility. Mm. That's where it kind of becomes problematic. Um, and the way we're seeing that play out a lot right now is around COVID and around whether or not you get like you're going to get sick or not so it turns from there's a possibility that i could get it which is true to i'm definitely going to get it if if x if i do x y and z i'm definitely going to get it or you know something bad is definitely going to happen to a loved one or something like that that's where it's sort of playing out a lot right now okay so it sounds like you're saying problematic anxiety is when you think you can tell the future as a fact, this is going to happen. A little bit of anxiety to kind of anticipate that it might happen sounds like it's helpful, it's needed, it's, it's okay. Um, why do you think, you, you mentioned that COVID and sort of this is what we're seeing certainly with the students we work with, but why do you think anxiety in our nation in particular is such a big deal? You know, you hear lots of people who have struggled with anxiety here in the United States and I think about in other places where maybe they're their, you know, living um, values are different, that they maybe have, I mean, I don't have the data for this, but I would imagine that their anxieties aren't as, as prevalent. And I'm just curious what you think as an expert, what do you think makes it for us here in the United States such a problem? Yeah, that's a good question. What, uh, what initially comes to mind, and I think you're spot on with the values piece, is we tend to only get anxious about things that matter to us. So if you look at people that have social anxiety disorder, for example, who get really anxious in social situations, they inherently have to care about social relationships or else they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel anxious in those situations. Like someone who like cares 0% about having relationships with other people are not going to care if they, you know, make a mistake in a presentation or if they, you know, say something that like people laugh at and think is funny um, because they wouldn't care about connection to other people, right? Um, and so, our values in our country dictate what people tend to get stressed out about. Mm. Um, we're, we're, I don't want to make too many generalizations, but I feel like, you know, achievement and performance and things like that is really big in our, in our culture and certainly mm -hmm. on a university campus. Um, and therefore I think performance on, on tests, um, presentations in class in general, how you're doing in comparison to another, you know, person in your class or like, you know, in your rotation for, for like medical school or something like that, because our value in America is so play, is placed so highly on sort of outcomes in that way. I think anxiety latches onto that, um, mm -hmm. in a, in a culture where maybe that is less of a focus, uh, or the focus is on something different, I imagine their anxieties would latch onto something different. Again, I, I, at least in my, in my understanding of it, the things that make us anxious are the things that, that matter to us the most because then the threat of losing that thing becomes so much more significant. That makes so much sense. Yeah, I think I've, as you were talking, I was shaking my head wildly because 
um, that that performance based thing and sort of what how what's the way success can be defined seem to be, I think, a big part of our um, culture in the United States and then even at UNC in particular um, on campus of this sort of high achieving um, sort of mindset and culture that can lead to grades being so associated with self-worth in a lot of ways. And that's very dangerous and damaging. Um, I think I often will say to a student um, that I might be working with in therapy of, you know, this is really dangerous that your self-worth as a person is being linked to whether you got an A on this one math exam. That's, that's very dangerous that, that an exam is somehow going to tell you who you are as a person and your worth as a person and those kind of things. And, um, and then also just how competitive it can set up an environment where people are looking around at everyone else and somehow someone else's success takes away from what I'm doing and my success. And then it, that becomes a zero game, zero sum sort of game that we all end up playing instead of something more cooperative or something where I can, do what I'm doing that I care about that I value. And you can also be doing what you're doing and we can both be doing well. And it doesn't have to be one of us can only do well. Yeah. To tie those two pieces together, Anthony, cause I think you're totally right. Like I could look at a math test and be like, it's been a long time since I've taken a math test. I promise you that math test will make no difference in the future. However, it, remembering that anxiety is about that sort of predicting the future or the feared future, the way that the, the mind tends to work, um, and I call it sort of like a snowball effect, is I fail this math test, and then maybe I fail this class, and then maybe I can't get into med school the way I want to, and then I can't have the kind of future I wanted. I've always wanted to be a, like a doctor, and my parents are gonna be disappointed because they're both doctors and that's what they expect. And then, you know, on and on and on where maybe they're lonely and living by themselves in like, you know, in a shack somewhere um, because they were never able to get a job and they lost all their loved ones. That, that one test becomes this long strain of future prediction that leads to something that, that then violates their, their values of um, success or um, accomplishment relationships and that kind of thing. So typically when you, when you kind of follow the, the initial fear that seems so like, why would you care about that? You see that it's tied to these really big value things. And then it makes so much sense why they would be so scared about it. Yeah. Just, I feel scared if I just listen to your description just now, because if, <laughs> if that, if that test equals I'm in a shack 10 years from now, then yeah, I'm really, I'm really frightened. But of course that's, that's sort of predictive fantasy. It's not, there's no real evidence that that's going to happen or what, but yeah, that does sound really scary if I take sort of the picture that you just painted. Well, and I think what makes it even more intense is the other thing that we know about anxiety is when we're in an anxious state. So when you're in fight or flight um, and that like internal alarm system is set off, our, like our, our internal systems shift in order to best prepare us to be able to like fight or run for our lives. So all unnecessary systems shut down. And for whatever reason, um, 
we don't need this part of our brain. Um, this is our prefrontal cortex where there's like higher order thinking, rational thought, problem solving, that kind of, that kind of stuff all is housed right here. You do not need this to see a mountain lion and know that that could really, you know, threaten your life and to run away from it. You need the part of your brain that processes emotions, uh, which is our limbic system. And you need those sort of primitive parts of our body that controls breathing, um, muscle coordination and things like that. And that's housed back here in your, um, your brainstem. Um, so the blood flow actually leaves this part of your brain and flows back to those more primitive parts of your brain when you're feeling really, really anxious which makes sense, again, from, if there's a mountain lion, doesn't necessarily make sense when you're preparing for a math test, but our body doesn't know the difference between a real threat and a, a hypothetical mm -hmm. worry. And so we lose access to that part of our brain for a while. And you actually can't think rationally to be like, okay, well, no, this one math test does not mean that I'm never gonna get a job and everyone's going to leave me. Um, because you actually don't have as much access to that part of your brain when you're feeling really anxious. That's why a lot of times later, you know, someone might be like, why was I so worried about that? That seems so silly now. It's because literally that part of your brain is not working for you when you're mm -hmm. feeling really, really anxious. So while we on the outside can look at a worry and be like, but that's silly, that wouldn't happen. Um, in the moment, that feels really, really true. And part of that is because what actually on like a biological level, your brain's not working the way it usually does. Yeah, that's, I mean, just so much. Thank you so much. I'm so excited we have you here today to pick your brain because yeah. I was thinking as you were talking about how important or, or what role does like mindfulness play and, and kind of calming your body down and maybe being able to access some of those parts of your brain, like you said, that the blood flow has shifted to to keep us safe. How important is it to sort of try to reset our body if we're doing anxiety work and trying to kind of get out of that fight or flight state? Yeah. So, and I will just be totally transparent here. <laughs> I am an, I'm an anxious person. So I will tell you that if someone tells me to use mindfulness when I'm feeling anxious, I'm going to have a couple choice words in my head for that person. Um, mindfulness for me when I'm feeling anxious is like torture. Trying to sit and focus and clear my mind when I'm anxious uh, I mean, I might as well be like, you know, trying to hold like a freezing cold ice cube in my hand and not drop it. You know what okay. I mean? It's like torture. Um, however, that does not mean that I don't believe in mindfulness. The way that I think that mindfulness becomes really, really helpful when you're anxious is if you're being mindful, if you're paying attention to your emotions and I can recognize enough to know, you know what, I'm really anxious right now. Um, using that kind of paying attention to my mind to recognize it can be just enough for what I need to then say like, okay, I need to go to my toolkit and figure out what I can do to calm my body down first and then come back to more of sort of a problem solving and looking at my, my anxiety and figuring out what to do with it. When you're in fight or flight, when you're feeling really anxious, trying to problem solve because this, is, this has limited blood flow is going to be so ineffective. So using mindfulness, paying attention to your emotions, recognizing when that shift is coming on is a great way to kind of cue yourself to, okay, let me go and take care of my body. Let me calm my body down. And, you know, 
I have my own sort of go-tos for doing that. And then once I physically feel calmer, then I can come back to the situation and be like, okay, let me think about this rationally. Yes, this, this will stick with the math test. Yes, this math test is very important. It's 50% of my grade. Um, and I'm recognizing that going 10 feet you know, ahead or 10 years ahead is not very helpful for me. What would be helpful for me? What would be helpful is like going to office hours would be maybe asking a friend if they want to study with me, you know, so when my brain is calmer and that blood flow rebalances, mm -hmm. I can think more rationally and problem solve the fact that, yeah, this math test is important to my grade. It's not going to, you know, lead to me never having the things I want in my future necessarily. But right now, you know, I can shift to it. So the way that mindfulness I think becomes really helpful is by attuning us to when that emotional shift starts happening and when you get really good at kind of catching yourself you can usually get it before you've gone sort of full anxiety mode in which case then you got to go and kind of wait until your body calms down before you can come back and problem solve. Great, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you being honest about that because I think, you know, people sometimes can look at us and say, you guys are the experts, you're the, you know, the practitioners, you tell us what to do. And I think it's really honest to say that, hey, that's something that I can tell people to do and recommend and know has some, some value, but it's really hard for me. And I think that's the importance of having a toolkit, right? Like, one thing is not going to work for everyone. Um, totally. so, yeah, I appreciate that and that honesty. Oh, and I think, and I think your honesty sort of just models the process of continually working on some of the things that we'll be talking about in this podcast and mental health that a process around anxiety isn't just I learn a couple of skills and then I zap it away and I never deal with this ever again because as you talked about there are things that have made this um, evolutionary and sort of for survival and so there's a really a naturalness to being human and to having anxiety anxious feelings come up for us and so it's not that that will always go away and even for you as an expert you can say but I also tend to be anxious and so it's not something that just gets eradicated but you can better learn to manage and, and deal with things and not have that interfere um with with your life or to rob your life of joy and i think that that's an important message for people to understand um yeah. as we do this podcast and as we think about mental health so that people don't get into um perfectionism around mental health or um, have really unrealistic goals around sort of what it can mean to heal even. Yeah. Yeah. And I think reminding ourselves that the anxiety is there for us for a reason, that it has an evolutionary function. It's there to protect us is something that I think is so important for us to re remind ourselves of because I think it's so easy to get in this state of like, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, I'm, I'm messed up. I have a disorder. Like this is bad. And, and in reality, our anxiety, our brain is doing the best it can to protect us. It's trying to help us recognize threats when it's there. And sometimes it gets it wrong. And so when you can approach your anxiety from a place of like, well-meaning sort of curiosity, like, and sometimes I'll even say this to myself and encourage other people to say this of like, like, Hey, anxiety, I know, I know you're trying to help me out. I know you're trying to protect me. And I know that sometimes you get it wrong. So let's kind of take a step back and look at what, what sort of interpretations I'm making and decide whether or not 
I need to move forward in sort of a, you know, a fight or flight kind of way, or if there's a different way to approach this. Yeah. So you led me into something also, Aaron and I have talked about one thing with this podcast as well as we hope to be, to be able to be personal too. So to share reflections from a professional sort of mindset and expertise, but also to be personal. So I think you're leading us into, I wonder if we here could share a bit about things we do that we've found helpful for ourselves in moments of anxiety to, to manage that and, and, and cope with that. And I'm thinking for myself of, um, I don't even think I knew this is what it was called until I was in um, my training, but grounding, I find um, very helpful for me. I used to, I don't tend to be, I think people would have usually said they would have trouble reading me at all. And I don't know that I tended to be all that anxious as a person most of my life, but in times of anxiety, I can remember that something like chewing gum was really helpful for me. And there was something about focusing on that process of just the chewing that got me out of whatever was happening with a process in my mind or my body that was ramping up more anxiety. And so over time, as I learned about the technique of grounding, that's something that I come back to and, and really find helpful to focus on my bodily sensation in a chair and just what my body feels against the chair or my feet against the floor or something to redirect. And I know that that's something that I can find really helpful. And I still will use gum at times if that um, comes up, if I'm maybe in a presentation or something, if I could just sort of chew beforehand or something like that, I noticed that that can help me to center myself for it to calm. I like that one. I like that one a lot. Yeah, I think that there's something to empowering yourself, like giving yourself a choice in what you focus on. Because I think a lot of times anxiety kind of feels like a runaway train. And like once you hop on, just get ready because there it goes. And having something to focus on, uh, I think oftentimes can help us feel more in control. Like I can sit and I can chew this piece of gum and I can focus on this right now. Um, and that doesn't mean that you won't hop back on the train and like your thoughts might not run off and the gum gives you something to kind of return to. Um, so oop, there I go, like worrying about the math test. Okay, hang on. I've decided I want to focus on like this simple task right now and I can do that. And so let me return to this. And that's where I think mindfulness comes in and can be really powerful and why it's a practice is because I think Anthony and tell me what you think about this but like I'm guessing the first time you used the gum chewing thing it wasn't like oh look I'm so calm and focused it was like I'm focusing on my gum and now I'm worrying about this and now I'm focusing on the gum and now I'm worrying about this and now <laughs> you know that sort of back and forth thing for sure for sure yeah um I'm thinking for me it's sort of in a similar way that I described before uh, around like recognizing when I'm feeling anxious and that I might not be at my best for focusing um, or trying to problem solve an anxiety. A lot of times I'll use just like taking a break. So if I'm feeling really anxious about um, um, a presentation I'm working on and I'm so stuck in my head, but I'm trying like, you know, I'm trying to push through and I'm trying to write and it's just not coming through. Sometimes I'll be like, you know what? I'm gonna give myself a timeout. I'm gonna go take a walk. I'm going to focus on kind of breathing and just taking care of my body, calming my body down. And when I feel like my body isn't like ready to jump out of like my own skin, then I'm going to come back and try again. Because then in my mind, I know that this is, I call it like flipping your, 
lid. I'll have to explain that later. Um, <laughs> when I feel like I flipped my lid and I'm not connected, um, I, I know that trying to push through and work on something from like an intellectual place is not going to be productive. So if I go and do something to calm my body down and I can kind of reconnect my brain or unflip my lid, um, then I, I know I kind of gotten myself at a better place where I can look at what's making me anxious a little bit more objectively. Yeah, I really like both of those examples. And I think, first, I want to go back, Anna, to I really like the self-compassion that you, I think, model when you were talking about how you talk to yourself and you sort of reframe it as like, hey, anxiety, I know you're here to keep me safe. And I know you're doing, you know, your job, you're doing it a little too well. Um, and I really think that that's important. That's been really helpful for me to kind of speak kindly to myself about it and not beat myself up about it. And sort of, I, I think that those are, you know, techniques that I've learned over the course of, of my life to, to be helpful. My anxiety comes, you know, I was in a car accident years ago. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when I approach an intersection, I notice my body gets really tense. And I notice that I'll have this fleeting thought of like, oh, oh no, like I'm bracing for it. And so one thing that I've learned to do is to just sort of challenge, like, like think of all the reasons why this is, pro this is not probably going to happen, right? And, and it's a really quick thing that I've learned to do, but I can literally be approaching an intersection and have a bodily, you know, kind of bracing. And I'll say, nope, you drive here every single day you're safe like the lights red you know you this is driving is relatively like I'll go through maybe four or five things in my mind and as I'm saying it to myself my body is starting to relax and then I'm off and going and and it doesn't happen all the time but you know that's something that I, I think has really helped me to not relive um I think my body maybe relives a little bit of it but not to let my mind go to oh my gosh you're gonna get hit again you're gonna be in you know that whole thing again. So I wondered if you could speak to kind of like when our bodies feel tension and anxiety and, and so some of it is anticipatory, right? Like, cause I'm expecting it, but also ways that maybe we could help, um, you know, calm our bodies down and things we could do if we're feeling anxiety kind of physically. Yeah, sure. And that's exactly what that is that you feel, Erin happen because because our our fight or flight system can't tell the difference between a real threat and a false alarm um it is what just having that thought of i could get hit by a car right now could be enough to set our body off into preparation for that so that tension you feel is literally bracing for impact um when you know your tells like aaron you know that that has been your experience you know that um, you tend to get anxious sometimes while you're driving. It, the first thing that you can do when you notice that is just telling yourself, oh, I know this is a trigger for me. Oh, I know this is something that happens because right away that takes it from this is actually going to happen. I think that's the first step in sort of preparing yourself to take care of your body when you've gotten um, sort of what, what we call a false alarm kind of trigger, um, okay. is recognizing, okay, I know driving through intersections is a, is a trigger for me. So right away that takes that sort of into a different space of recognizing that it could be anxiety versus a real threat. After that, I do, I think there's so many different tools that we have. It's hard to kind of narrow down the different things that you can do to calm your body down. The easiest one to access um, and the one that I get probably the most frustrated with because it is like 
challenging to do when you're anxious is, is breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the increase in breathing that happens when you're anxious is actually your fight or flight system trying to bring more oxygen in to oxygenate your muscles so that you can run faster, fight harder, um, you know, pump your, your heart effectively and things like that. That's why we get increased breathing when we get um, it tends to have the opposite effect um, because when you start breathing more, we tend to breathe more shallowly. So we do like <laughs> kind of thing from up here. What that does is it throws off the oxygen and carbon dioxide balance in our body, which can make us hyperventilate. Um, it can also make you lightheaded, which just happened when I did that really briefly. Um, uh, which is then going to make me feel more anxious because I'm like, uh oh, what's going on? Why do I feel sick? Um, and so when we're able to breathe and kind of calm, like force our body into more of sort of a regular breathing pattern where we're taking in like a sort of a regular amount of oxygen, that can rebalance our system and tell and communicate to our, so if the, let me back up for a second. If the part of our body that is fight or flight is the sympathetic nervous system is the one that activates us. It's the parasympathetic nervous system that calms us down. Forcing your body to breathe, quote unquote, normally kind of tricks your parasympathetic nervous system into thinking that things are cool and you can calm down. Um, And so if you can get yourself to breathe steadily and calmly, your parasympathetic nervous system will kick in and help calm you down the rest of the way. So you don't have to like take yourself all the way back down to zero. The parasympathetic nervous system helps with that. But that act of breathing, um, you know, calmly, steadily, and things like that, not like the big (sighs) breath, because that again is going to throw off your balance, but just a nice, normal, natural breath um, that can kind of help kick that system in and help calm you down. So that's probably the easiest one to access when you're like out and about driving where you don't necessarily have the ability to do some of the other things. So are you, so, okay, catch this students and people listening. Um, Dr. Locke is telling us that one of the easiest ways to, or most accessible, I maybe won't say easiest, maybe they're easier ones, but one of the things we can do is just to really be thoughtful about our breathing when we're feeling, you know, anxious kind of in our bodies. I know I have a lot of students who come in, they feel anxiety in their gut, um, their heart, yeah, racing, all of those things. So there's some physiological things that, you know, they're feeling that let them know that they're, that they're anxious. Um, and so this is a really, thank you so much. And I, I don't want people to miss that that's really empowering to know, like I could be thoughtful and change my breathing a little bit to kind of trick myself almost into safety and then I can maybe start to access some other ways to to um, engage so just wanted to highlight that because I think that's really important yeah and uh, and again I think thinking our way out of anxiety like talking yourself out of anxiety is not always an effective way. Like Erin, for you, it might work when you're sort of at a lower level of anxiety. Like, "Eh, I feel a little anxious in this intersection, but I also can tell that I'm not getting hit by a car right now. So you're probably not fully getting to that point where you've totally like flipped your lid, which by the way, if this is, I use this flip your lid thing as like, this is your brain and this is your brain stem. This is your amygdala in your limbic system where your emotional functioning is and then this this is your prefrontal cortex so most of the time we walk around in these three pieces sort of 
coordinate with each other. When you get anxious and that blood flow leaves this front part of your brain, I call it flipping your lid because it's like this disconnects from the rest of your brain. So this limbic system disconnects from the emotional part of your brain and sort of the primitive part of your brain. And so you can't think clearly. So I love that. Anyway, yeah, it's great. So, because uh, it's so, so very visual. So when you're driving, like Aaron, you're probably not fully flipping your lid so you can think rationally and be like, okay, I get why this is happening. And it's like, and I also know it's not happening right now. But if you were, let's say like walking down a dark street by yourself in the middle of the night, like, and you hear a noise behind you, you might full on flip your lid. Like you might full on disconnect because it's a life threatening thing that you don't know whether or not is actually going to happen. Because And so once you kind of lose that connection, it's a lot harder to talk yourself through um, or sort of rationalize. Like this isn't a big deal. This isn't, you know, this isn't actually happening or something like that. Um, that's why... I I think we cut out. I, I missed the very last piece you just said. That's why. Oh, sorry. My internet is unstable. Um, that's why trying to talk yourself out of your anxiety is not always helpful because once you've flipped your, your lid, it's like you don't have that. And that's probably not helpful to tell someone who's anxious, just calm down. You just need to calm down. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's like the most annoying thing to say to someone who's anxious. Like, just calm down. Thank you very much. I didn't think of that before. <laughs> so I know we want to also get to talking to you specifically about COVID and anxiety. But before we shift to that, I also just wanted to get your thoughts on avoidance and what that, the, what that does in the process of anxiety and healing or dealing with anxiety. So I wanted to get your, your views about that because I know that that comes up a lot in our work. Sure. Yeah. Avoidance. Avoidance is very tempting and sometimes very pleasant. Um, it is a great short-term solution for anxiety. It is not a long-term solution and it like, I have this assignment to work on, but I don't, like it's stressing me out. I don't really want to think about it. So I'm going to go play video games and just like not do this. Um, that's one kind of avoidance, like actually physically avoiding doing something. Aaron, if you were to never drive your car um, because you didn't want to deal with that anxiety of like, what if I get hit again, that would be avoidance. There's a lot more subtle kinds of avoidance that we do. Um, and just sort of like how we, how we try to disconnect or like at least distance ourselves from the anxiety. So let's say, and I'm not at the moment, um, but let's say that I'm like, I was feeling really anxious about doing this podcast. Maybe I would sit here and like bite at my nails or like pick at my skin or um, uh, maybe I would have my dog sit on my lap and I would pet my dog. That would be like a really tiny way of distracting myself. And that would be almost sort of like self-soothing that would help disconnect from my anxiety a little bit. And those are totally healthy ways of like managing your anxiety, right? There's nothing wrong. Well, depends how much you're biting your nails, picking your, <laughs> but like petting my dog, for example, like that wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing. Now, if I always needed to pet my dog to manage my anxiety, that's where it could kind of become problematic. And it would keep me from maybe finding more practical or more helpful ways of managing my, my anxiety if that's what I always relied on. Um, 
Uh, things like being on our phone all the time is often a form of avoidance. Like I'm feeling really anxious in this social situation. So I'm just going to go on my phone and like text someone, text someone um, because then I don't have to kind of connect with or be focusing on the things that are around me. So in the short term, what's helpful about that is it helps calm your body down, right? Because you can focus on talking to this person on your phone or like surfing the internet or whatever. And then you're not paying attention to what's going on around you. That's making you feel anxious. But then the second you don't have access to your phone, the second you put your phone down, if you forget your phone in a social situation, then you've got, you got nothing, you know, you, you have no choice but to connect to the things that's making you anxious. So it doesn't help as like a long-term solution. So I don't know. A lot of times I'll tell people like, if you have, like, if you're really just not feeling it and you really need to disconnect, go ahead and avoid. Like we can't be constantly focusing on facing our fears, um, being in our anxiety. There's a time and a place for that. But sometimes if you're feeling really stressed out, just go ahead and watch TV. Just go ahead and disconnect, be on your phone. That is okay. As long as it's not the thing that you're doing every single time. When you feel like you have the space for it, then that's the time where you need to sort of like spend more time with your anxiety, figure out what it's trying to communicate for you. Help you figure out how to really like overcome your anxiety, address your anxiety. Let me turn this off. Sorry. Um, uh, but again, sometimes we just can't and then avoidance is okay. Well, I'm sure that's a topic we'll continually come back to because I think a big part of therapy and, and seeking out mental health treatment is learning to break the avoidance patterns people have gotten into that help to, if it's maintain anxiety or other kinds of uh, difficulties that people can have that bring them into our office, if it's about vulnerability and relationships or other kinds of things um, for people to really practice at. And um, we've already talked on this podcast about uh, the importance to life of stepping into discomfort at times and what we can learn in, in those moments. And, um, and that's one of the things avoidance can rob us of is that that learning piece of things. If we just continually avoid, then we don't learn um, that it can be all right. Or we don't learn that all of those assumptions we made about the terrible things that would happen um, don't come true. And so um, that's something I'm sure we'll continually um, be returning to here. But also wanted to give you a chance as well. We're in the middle of um, a very bizarre time in human history of dealing with uh, COVID. And so also wanted to get your thoughts on what you've been seeing, learning, learning about yourself, um, advice, anything just related to uh, COVID, managing COVID-related anxiety, um, because there, there is a lot of that for many of us, most of us. Um, and I think that that's, I know, from just a little bit of interaction with students as we're getting closer to the fall, um, that that's going to be a real concern um, for students. And so just wanted to get your thoughts about managing COVID-specific anxiety. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, as soon as you, as soon as you asked that, I was already thinking about like, like not having as much space to cope. Like that's the one place that I've really found has been so remarkable for me with COVID. Um, even if I'm not consistently thinking about it right now, just the fact that this is happening in, in, in our world, um, 
just because there is constant flow of news around this. Um, uh, same thing with the socio-political climate. It's not that that racial injustice wasn't happening before. Uh, it's just it, it, with with more or with increased attention to it and increased um, social media content about it. Um, so much that we're world that's content heavy of the stressful things that are happening and it's hard it's harder to kind of not pay attention to right so we're constantly aware of these things that are going on in the world for us and because of that i think there's less space for us to cope with the stuff that was there that was stressful before all of this right so um that's something i've really noticed for me is i'm more prone to avoidance right now than i have been previously just because i feel like i'm i'm processing the stress of COVID and racial injustice in ways that obviously I didn't have to before because COVID wasn't there and maybe because of my white privilege didn't have to before around, you know, social justice as much as I am now currently. Noticing that there's a lot less space to cope and therefore avoidance is happening more. I think it's a balance for me between like I said, sort of letting myself avoid when I need to, like going ahead and like binging some Netflix when I just need to like disconnect for a little bit and times where I really need to sit and be focusing on um, what's going on with my anxiety. Why am I getting so triggered by this one thing or, or, you know, what do I need to be thinking about with regards to COVID and things like that. So that's sort of the first thing I kind of want to put out there that I've noticed for myself is I just have less space for coping right now. Um, Anna, can, uh, I, can I step in and ask, does it matter, you know, I think when I think about anxiety, I think about what you were talking about earlier about how, you know, it's the idea that one thought could lead to this sort of really, really remote possibility that my brain can latch onto. But with COVID, there is some merit to, to the concern. And does that yeah. factor into it at all, right? Because people are experiencing getting sick loved ones getting sick and so I'm curious if that makes it harder to sort of name it as anxiety or treat it as anxiety just because there is a very real now it's not of course as you're saying it's not a, a absolute that you're going to get it but that there's a real concern and risk and so I'm just curious if that factors into yeah. you know how you name this and treat this and all of that with COVID yeah Yes, absolutely. We are not talking about hypothetical worry here. We are talking about real threat. Um, uh, this is something that at this point, probably everybody knows someone who's gotten it. Everybody has heard of someone who has lost a loved one to it. Um, this is not hypothetical in the least. And that does change it. You can't approach a real threat situation as if it's hypothetical, because then that leads to other problems, just in the way that you don't want to approach a hypothetical situation like it's a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're dealing with right now is actually a real threat. So, you know, I'm, I've talked to students who are really anxious about living on campus, and I can't tell them not to worry about it. Right. Um, I'm worried about it. I, I think being worried about it makes sense. And, you know, I think there's things that you can do, you can do to manage that anxiety. But yeah, I totally think that right now, this is not a hypothetical situation we're talking about. It's a real threat. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of a student I worked with um, the other day who was sharing the things that she normally does to cope, visit with family, spend good times with going to brunch with friends. She's largely cut off from, and that's made it harder to sort of even feel recharged enough to access the energy to do creative things. And so I think a lot of validation, a lot of, you know, that makes sense. And really, again, going back to some self-compassion and and we're all living through this. I think that's, to me, what makes this a little unique is that we're all, to some degree or other, living through this and experiencing at some point probably some anxiety um, around it. So I found myself a little bit less able to even help her creatively problem solve because a lot of what she experienced, I've also experienced. Yeah, I miss traveling and that's what normally helps me feel recharged as well. So I think it's important for us, as Anthony was saying, because we're humans, we're people too, to remember that, you know, we, I feel sometimes a little less impactful during COVID because the things that I normally suggest people do aren't as accessible, but we're still needed. And we also have to, you know, make sure that we're doing what we can kind of walk in the walk ourselves so that we can say, this is something that's been helpful for me. And I know that usually travel is the thing that does it. And Anthony, you could speak to this even more so and how, you know, travel, I know is something that's a value of yours that you have been largely cut off from during this time and how you've had to be creative to get that same need filled. Um, yeah, so more of a comment than a question, but I think that's what made, has made working in this day and age with COVID hard is that, yeah, some of the fears, they're not unfounded and they're not outside of the realm of possibility and you don't want to travel because it doesn't feel safe. And yeah. Um, yeah. And are there ways that you can try to get, capture some of that or do some other things that might be helpful here? So I found myself doing a lot of yes and kinds of work. Yeah. Like, Definitely. And I, I think I'm so glad you shared that, Erin, because it's not only that there's more, there's more in the world to be scared of right now, there's also less access to the things that we usually do to cope with our stress. Um, and that is a really important part. And so, like, I do think, you know, problem solving, getting creative around how you're coping is, in, is important, recognizing that it is a real, a real threat and that you're not being sort of irrational um, in your worries. Um, is important and as you said both and um, we have to still live our lives and we have to still function in spite of this right now um, school is opening um, uh, responsibilities still do exist we do have to go to the grocery store um, these these are things that we have to kind of work on how do I manage this um, and protect myself as much as possible and still operate in a world where this is a real threat and this is actually happening. Yeah, so true. And I think as you were both touching on what it means to many of us all be in the same boat, it maybe helps a bit um, versus that feeling of I'm the only one going through something. So that strange camaraderie of this time of us experiencing some similar things with each other. But I think also, particularly Aaron, as you were talking, I was just thinking about also this being a time where I know you spoke to self-compassion, this idea of I'm doing the best I can becomes important and where 
if we can not have some of the perfectionism we can get into or maybe this expectation that we're in a very strange time. And so part of coping with this time is to be forgiving uh, of ourselves and, and others and to be flexible within that and to realize many times we're doing the best we can and that that can be um, sufficient for the time that we're in right now. So I was thinking about that as you were, as you were talking. I have a couple of thoughts around Anthony, as you were saying that about like, you know, self-compassion and do it and doing the best that we can. Um, I think it's one of the things that keeps coming up for me and people I've talked to is like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm, I'm scared. Like I know that this is threatening and like, I want to, I want to go out and see my friends. I want to go out and do, and do these things. And like, gosh, the times that I have like let, like I've sent my son back to daycare and I feel so anxious and guilty about it all of the time, but it's like, how do I do my job and have my child at home right now? And it's, and, and there's no clear answer. And so what I've really relied on in helping myself make these decisions is one CDC recommendations. Like I feel like if I can read the CDC recommendations and I'm doing everything that they tell me that I should be doing to protect myself, that's the best I can do. There's no guarantee, there's no certainty to it, but that's that I can do. And then the other piece is, um, um, is like values, being aware of why I'm doing what I'm doing and where my values are. It might be that I take a risk on something because I value something else. So like I'm thinking, for example, like if I, let's say, and it's not, but let's say it was like my niece's birthday and I really wanted to see her um, because I value that relationship, I might risk, now she lives, again, she lives in New Jersey, so I'm not doing this, but like, um, I might risk, like, leaving my house and driving to her house and maybe, like, standing outside where I'm seeing her to try to, like, keep with the CDC recommendations, but also still get to see her, um, um, that might be sort of a compromise that I make with myself um, of like, okay, I'm going to risk leaving the house right now. I'm going to risk being around. I have to stop and get gas to get there or what, like to go buy her a present or whatever it is. I might make that risk because my value of that relationship is so high. It might also be that like, a friend of mine is having a party and I really like that friend and I really like socializing, but I value my health a lot more right now. And so I'm going to choose not to go to that party, even though I value those social relationships because I really value my health and I'm trying to stay healthy. And so it's all about like using what's important to you to make those compromises and knowing that at any point you might make a different decision. That has really helped me around like trying to be compassionate with myself and how I'm, you know, operating in the world right now, how I'm trying to make these impossible decisions really. Yeah, I really love that, Dr. Locke, because I think, you know, these are hard choices. They're not clear cut. And if you make it, like you said, with your values in mind, some of the guilt, it's, it probably will still be there, but it'll probably be lessened rather than doing something that kind of goes against your values or doesn't feel congruent with who you are and how you see yourself. So I think that's a really good kind of benchmark and, and ruler to use as we're living in this pandemic and making decisions um, around it. Um, 
we have a segment, part of our podcast as we wrap up Dr. Locke called Just Stop It. And this is the part where we really want to just give advice. You know, we don't often just tell people what to do, but a lot of times people think they're the only ones that are dealing with something or figuring something out. So can you offer some just stop it around anxiety and, and letting people know that they're not the only ones that X, Y, Z, that feel this way or deal with this or struggle with this. And yeah, just maybe some, some last words for folks as we challenge them to just stop, just stop it. Okay. Yeah, totally. Um, oh gosh, I have two thoughts. Um, my first just stop it is stop trying to be perfect because <laughs> there's no way to be perfect with anxiety. You will never figure out how to never be anxious again. Um, it is, it is a biological impossibility. If you figured it out, you'd probably end up dead real quick because you would make really bad risky decisions. <laughs> stop trying not to be anxious. It, it's not going to get anywhere except frustrated. Okay. That's my first one. Um, my, my second one, yeah, my second one actually just went out of my mind. And so I'm going to stick with my first one. Um, this is not about trying, like, about trying to, to, like, win anxiety or trick anxiety. It's not, it's not going to happen. This is about really learning how to, um, to be curious about your anxiety when it comes up, to not necessarily buy into it as a fact, to learn how to evaluate it, to figure out how to proceed with it, and to learn really good coping skills of like, how do I manage this when it comes up? Um, and like, when needed about like asking for help to figure out, you know, how when it gets to that sort of disordered place to get it to a level that's more manageable, but it will never be about trying to like completely get rid of it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I love that because it's so, it's real. We love, we loved having you today. We loved your authentic, you know, nature and style. And that's what makes you not only a friend, but a colleague. Um, students, if you're listening and want to connect with Dr. Lash, she's a full schedule because she's does a lot of things here at CAPS, but um, you know, you can look at our website, her information's there. She's got a lot of different really cool, <coughs> excuse me, programs going on that you can find out more about. But I love your advice on anxiety and we hope to have you in the future as the semester gets rolling and we're learning more and figuring out more. And, and students, if you have questions or people, you know, if you want things answered by ourselves or Dr. Locke, please let us know. And we'd love to have you back if you're open to it. I would love that. This was fun. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And as Erin was alluding to, we'd love to have you back. And also want students to know that they can take a look at the CAPS website for um, self-help resources around anxiety. We have a self-help part of our website um, with extensive anxiety um, resources so they can stress resources so they can definitely check that out as well as the number of groups that we offer around we've touched on today things about self-compassion and mindfulness we have a ton of groups that deal with those things as well as other groups that can be really helpful if you find yourself dealing with with anxiety such as our connections understanding self and others group which seems to be um draw people who may have 
different anxieties around social interaction, and that can be very, very helpful um, for them, um, as well as other groups. We have our Taming Your Inner Critic group, and we were talking about sort of self-criticism today, perfectionism, and so that's another group that can be really helpful to work on some things that are at the core or lead us to a lot of um, these anxious feelings we can have, and so um, encourage students to be checking out the various resources at CAPS that can be really helpful for helping you in your journey of um, better managing, better dealing with the anxiety that we all naturally can feel. Um, so thank you again, Anna, for being here with us. And did you have final comments or something you wanted to say? I did. As you were talking about groups, it reminded me. Um, Retrain Your Brain um, is a resource that we have at CAPS that you can email us and we can get you a link for. It's, um, it's recorded right now. Um, Retrain Your Brain has some really helpful skills for um, when we were talking about how do you calm your body down when you're feeling really anxious. Retrain Your Brain has some great skills that we review as well as some handouts that we can give you that can teach you really helpful skills around breathing, around calming your body down, um, uh, uh, things that can help you sort of immediately uh, with your anxiety. If you're looking for stuff like that, contact us about Retrain Your Brain resources. I think that could be really helpful. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That to contact us and that's also listed on the website our retrain your brain workshop as well as i neglected to mention we were talking about covid and and coping managing with covid and we have a covid support group and so also wanted to make sure to mention that um so that students would know about that so thank you again anna dr Locke, for for joining us today um yeah. thank you aaron for being here and we've had a great time and this has been the feeling scene a unc caps podcast